Hey, it's Darcy McConvey, and this is the Venture and Gains podcast. The purpose of the show is to connect people to other great people, ideas, and opportunities. Everyone has less than a handful of people in their network where it seems like there's something different about them. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold, and they're those can't-miss people, and you just know it. These are the podcast guests. We catch them at various stages of their career, learn from how they think, so you can connect the dots and imply it. It's a journey that many getting into tech would love to take. From Uber employee number 62 to managing 10,000 plus people as head of mobility and business operations, Andrew McDonald's rise is a fascinating one and comes with some terrific lessons. The conversation spans the early days at Uber, launching city after city, tackling hurdle after hurdle along the way, to founder Travis Kalanick's ability to problem solve and align his team with the clarifying description and leadership tactic Here's how I think about the problem. To the Uber culture and how it has changed as the company grows and how entrepreneurship is very much celebrated. The Uber chat wraps up with where Uber goes next, focusing on mobility. My favorite parts of the conversation are Andrew's simple lessons that have got him to where he is today. With no real career master plan, he is ambitious and hardworking. So he would just try the next thing, work hard at it, and see where it goes from there. A refreshing approach. Mac leaves us with a personal framework. What would need to be true for me to start something? Some clear advice to new grads and insights on how to filter ideas as an investor or entrepreneur. If you didn't know Mac before, you should keep track of him from here. Enjoy this episode with Andrew McDonald. Andrew, welcome to the Venture and Gains podcast. Yeah, great to be here, Dars. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's too bad we can't do video because you had the old Home Alone background, which would have been uh, very seasonal and topical. But nevertheless, we're audio only. Yeah. So you can play carols over our over our voice if uh, if you need to drown us out. So you've been, I think, going on eight. I think it's about eight years going on uh, your sort of Uber journey since you started. And I'm going to read this um, quite extensive list of titles starting with general Man- manager of Toronto to general manager of Chicago to regional GM of central U.S. and Canada, regional GM of central U.S., Canada, Latin America, then Latin America and Asia Pacific, vice president of operations, Latin America and Asia Pacific. I think this is about the time where, I don't know if you ever saw the clip where Phil Mickelson jumps in when they're introducing Tiger Woods on the first <laughs> tee at the tour championship. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, we got it. Yeah. VP America's Ops, uh, American Operations, Global Business Development, Senior VP of Global Rides and Platform, and now Senior Vice President of Mobility and Business Ops. So that's quite the journey, global journey. What does today's title mean and what exactly do you do at Uber? Yeah, I mean, when you read it all off sequentially there, um, I think I need to update my LinkedIn and make it a little tighter. But just for context, I joined, as you said, about eight and a half years ago at Uber. Yeah. I was, I think, employee number 62. And so I've been fortunate to grow with the organization. And when you're on a rocket ship or when you're part of an organization that scales really, really quickly, if you're able to keep up with it, you get to take on more and more and more. And so that's kind of been my story there. Um, my role today, as you said, I sort of have two main jobs. One is I'm the head of our mobility business, which 
you know, for most of our existence has been Uber's only business. Um, so this is, you know, ride sharing UberX, but then some of the other stuff that we're getting into, uh, you know, integrations with public transportation, bikes and scooters, third-party partners, those types of things. So anything mobility, anything moving people sort of reports into me and I, I'm the P&L owner. So I don't run everything that touches the mobility business, but I'm ultimately head of operations, which means I own at the end of the day, the p is my responsibility. So top line and bottom line growth and competitive position are sort of the, the key aspects that I, I make sure we're delivering on there. And then I've got this second part of my role, which is head of business operations. And those are sort of central organizations. We don't have a COO. So these are, these are the types of things that might normally report into a COO uh, and used to report into our COO when we did have one. So our customer service organization, our business development organization, our safety and insurance team, which is a very big part of our, our business, just given the nature of, of the industry we're in. And then our, our B2B part of our business, which is called Uber for Business, which sells you know corporate ground travel, food solutions, et cetera, to companies. So two different roles, one sort of central working across all the use, and then one, you know, all things mobility. So a couple of questions out of that, but the big one is like, how do you manage, those seem like two massive roles of a massive business. How do you sort of allocate and manage your time day to day? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I'm constantly tweaking. So I don't pretend to have a perfect formula. I think what helps is I have very senior leaders, very excellent operators who are, you know, across each of those things. So I've got four regional heads running the mobility business. And then I've got um, for each of those platform teams, I mentioned uh, as a single individual person running those, those organizations. So I think the biggest thing is I've got really great people who do their jobs really well. And so for me, mm-hmm. I don't spend my time, you know, micromanaging what they're doing. These are senior business leaders running multi-billion dollar P&Ls themselves I mostly just help them resolve problems, remove roadblocks, weigh in on the biggest issues, help drive sort of overall strategy and vision and resource allocation, and then leave the day-to-day to the folks who, who frankly, are, are closer and do a great job running those teams. You know, it'd be interesting to hear what your friends would say about it, but is this kind of where you always thought the type of role that you'd always envision yourself ending up in? Short answer is probably not. Yeah. Because for me, it's interesting. I've always been ambitious and kind of hardworking and, you know, wanting to do really well at whatever I'm doing, but I've never had like a master plan. There hasn't been Mm -hmm. a, you know, like it's always sort of been try the next thing, see how it goes, try to be good at it, and then, you know, go from there. So, it's not like I went to university with some plan to be a business executive. I did an undergrad business degree, thought, hey, consulting looks interesting. Let's go try that. Enjoyed it, learned a lot, did well at it, but I don't want to do this for my life. Hey, let's go try being an entrepreneur. Did that, learned a lot, didn't succeed You know, as far as business outcome. But as, a, as that was sort of winding down, okay, now this Uber opportunity, that looks kind of cool. Let's go try that. So yeah, I wouldn't say that I envisioned myself ending up in this type of role because I haven't had like a 
you know, a five-year plan. It's always kind of been try the next thing. Maybe on that note, talk a little bit about the story of joining Uber, because I think, and we'll get into maybe, you know, a little bit later, how you might offer advice to to people that were in your role coming out of call it undergrad and join Bain, you know, back in the day. But it's interesting because at the time, you know, Uber, everybody's black car, you're a super talented guy. I think you kind of, you know, climbed the rungs at Bain pretty quickly and then started your own, like you just mentioned, startup. And then I, I don't know if I'm recalling this correctly, but at the time you were considering, you know, do I go maybe back into consulting or join a firm or, you know, then you started a conversation with, you know, what probably your, your close friends at the time thinking about it now, it's funny, but at the time would have said like, you're joining a, a taxi startup almost, you know? So like, so like, it seems like you do make decisions, you know, intuitively, and it was a pretty good decision now looking back. Yeah. So so to set the stage a little bit for that time of my life, my career you're describing, I was running a startup called Shop My Clothes, which was a marketplace business for essentially reselling clothing. By the way, that that's probably a thing like that's a thing now, right? It was probably a little early. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I would I would I think if I say, hey, we were early. That's probably a cop out. I just don't think we went about it yeah. the right way. We had the wrong model, and you know, we did. We had the wrong model. We didn't have the right pieces on the team, myself included. I wasn't ready at that point, so we we did like a hundred different things wrong. So, but it was you know, it was going along. We were going a bit, you know, we were having. I wouldn't say a ton of success, but there was enough there that I was wondering whether I should try to go raise some money and keep it going. Uh, but I just sort of had this feeling in my stomach that it wasn't the right thing, that we we weren't on the path to success and that it wasn't what I wanted to spend the next five years of my life committed to. And mm-hmm. I sort of realized, hey, look, if if I'm not able to, you know, convince myself that this is something I want to commit to for at least the medium term, then how could I possibly go ask, you know, friends and family and other investors to put money behind me when I lacked that mm-hmm. conviction. So, so that, that sort of led me to the conclusion that, okay, I need to stop doing this. And we, we decided to wind down that business. Um, and then I was thinking, okay, what, what should I do next? And sometimes having options is, you know, having options is generally obviously great. I think I had the, I sort of had a standing offer to return to Bain which if I'd done it would have been the comfortable thing to do at the time, but obviously would have been uh, in retrospect, a a very bad career move. But having that option was a little bit dangerous and tempting because, you know, it was a salary. They were going to go pay for me to go do my MBA. It was a job that I, I knew I could do well and a team and culture that I really liked. So it was tempting, but ultimately I had made the decision to not be a career consultant. So I wanted to move out of that. So Fortunately, as I was sort of wrestling with what to do, someone sent me an email, a friend of a friend who'd gone to school with a woman who was running Uber's business in DC at the time. And essentially the email said, you know, we're looking for someone to launch our Canadian business and run that. I'd never even heard of Uber at that time. So I obviously did some Googling, read some TechCrunch articles, 
seemed like a kind of a cool concept and was having some early traction. And so I thought, Hey, okay, whatever. I'll throw my hat in the ring. But again, it's not something I had a ton of conviction around. It's not like, you know, in subsequent years, I would interview people at Uber and they'd come to the interview and be like, this is my favorite company. It's my favorite product. I love Uber. I've wanted to work here from the minute I tried it. And that wasn't me. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I just thought it was kind of interesting and, it was a different stage too, though, right? A little bit like it was. It was a different. Now stage. it's like it's got all these tentacles everywhere. But yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't yet a verb, right? It was. It was a different stage. Um, so I threw my hat in the ring, you know, and and start, and got into the process. At one point, they went silent for like a month on me, and I was like, oh, I guess that didn't work. And I was looking at other stuff, and I was like, oh, well, whatever. And then somebody got back in touch. And as it turned, as I later found out, it was because they had another candidate that then turned down the job or whatever. So I got kind of lucky there. But even then, I remember they were like, all right, come down to San Francisco, meet with the CEO. So I'm like, sure, okay. How do you want me to book travel? You know, do you have a preferred car service I use when they get when I get to the airport? And they're like, Yeah, use Uber. <laughs> so I wasn't yet in that mindset of, okay, yeah, of course. Yes, that's what I should do. Um <laughs> And yeah, I went down, met with Travis, met with Ryan Graves, who was running ops. And that went really well. That conversation went really well. And, and they made me an offer on the spot. So I kind of, if I look at the process, it, it unfolded over three months. And there's probably four or five times where it could have ended and my life would be very different right now. But I guess I kind of lucked my way through it and, and ended up joining the company. That's a pretty cool story. So it pays to be uh, option B in your context. It's interesting to hear, like, I don't know what you can sort of talk about in terms of Travis and, and uh, you know, there's a bunch, bunch written about what unfolded sort of, you know, in the later years of him there, but you're just, I remember you saying how he's, his mental horsepower is just off the charts in, in terms of his ability to one process information and problem solve and, and sort of like, you know, just take an idea and, and, and see it through and sort of deliver an answer. Can you comment on that a little? Yeah. I mean, he is one of those, you know, special entrepreneurial people that the world has seen sort of very few of, at least that I, that I know of that are able to sort of think on a different level. And so it's, it's like, it's a raw intellectual horsepower, but it's sort of an ability to problem solve and literally dive into whatever the issue is, you know, his day was, probably like 16, 18 hours long. Cause he, he worked harder than anyone else at the company or anyone else I've seen. And it was just like back to back solving problems. So whatever the call was, he would be able to get, you know, he'd be able to five minutes into hearing about an issue, a topic, this would be something that, you know, people would spend weeks preparing for their meeting with Travis on an issue. And within like 10 minutes of the discussion, he kind of already, understood it as well as everybody else in the room and would have incisive feedback or comments or sort of take the the strategy or problem to the next level. And you'd kind of shake your head and go, Oh yeah, he's right. Like we're not thinking about this the right way. We need to, we need to go back and, 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 you know, change paths on how we were going to go. And he would do that all day with all sorts of different teams and issues. So that was, that was pretty amazing. And he used to call himself, um, you know, chief problem solver, right? That was, that was his, 
CEO title was just problem solver in chief. And it was because he just liked to jump from issue to issue and work through work through the solutions with the team. And it was the, the thing that he did really, really well, which I think is a good leadership lesson, is he would take you through his thinking on any issue, right? He, he would almost, mm-hmm. before answering, he would say, here's how I think about this problem. And then would take you sort of through a mental framework of, you know, why this matters and why this doesn't matter and how we should respond based on those things and the facts that we have or do not have, and then get to the answer. And what's really powerful about that as a leader is you then have people replicating that process themselves out in the field. So I regularly would think to myself, okay, here's how Travis would think about that problem. And then you could get there without needing your boss in the room. So that that's really, really powerful. And something I'm trying to do now is not just answer a question to my teams, but actually provide them with how I think about that question. It's actually surprising that like you're obviously a smart guy, but you know, you'd think when a guy like Travis leaves, it's not potentially scalable because the culture changes. But the fact that you can say, how would Travis think about it? And you kind of know how he thinks about that. That's interesting. It's like a real model that can be replicated where most times, even if he's explaining how we got there, you know, it's, it may be difficult to connect those dots. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So walk me through the early days of Toronto. Um, I know I went Toronto to Chicago and then kind of all over the place, but and maybe just highlight some of the, some of the sort of wacky or crazy things that you dealt with sort of in your journey to where you are today. Yeah. I mean, so we were, it was just a very different time for Uber, but also just for the industry overall. You know, when I joined, Uber was in seven cities and in all seven cities, uh, or uh, Toronto was the seventh city, second international city behind Paris. But everywhere we were operating, we were literally fighting for our lives from a legal and regulatory perspective. So, you know, what we were doing was, you know, generally not defined or supported by existing transportation for hire vehicle rules, whatever you want to call it. And remember, this was a year and a half, two years before UberX. This is what I'm talking about is we were a black car service. You know, we were, mm-hmm. this was basically software to connect you to a licensed limousine product. So these are not unlicensed drivers. This isn't peer to peer like UberX would become. This is literally limousine operators that were already driving and licensed in cities um, around the world. And so, you know, okay, why was this controversial? Well, the way that most rules around uh, the limousine industry were written was to be explicitly protective of the taxi industry and to make sure that limousines of black cars did not compete on the turf of taxis. And so generally what you had were really anti-consumer, anti-competitive type laws on the books, you know, regulations Mm -hmm. on pricing. And, And generally what they were was minimum fares that were quite high. You know, in Toronto, the the rules were written to say you had to charge at least $70 for a ride. Um, And the language was kind of cloudy around, is that per hour or is that, you know, a minimum fare? In a bunch of places, it was like, I think Ottawa was $15 um, just to start, you know, just to get in the car, it costs you 15 bucks. Um, You also had pre-booking rules, which is absolute craziness. 
So Toronto had, I think it was 20 minutes, uh, maybe 15 minutes, but 20 minutes. You had to pre-book a car at least 20 minutes in advance. Like if a limousine, you know, were to just be driving by on the street and it was empty and you, you happen to wave and flag down the driver and say, hey, I want to pay you for a ride. Unless you literally stood outside the car waiting for 20 minutes, you'd be breaking the law, which is crazy. But of course, the reason for that was to make sure that they couldn't compete with like the street hails of taxis. Um, so there's all these types of rules. And, and no matter where you go in the world, there was some variation of what I described, which was minimum pricing, which was exorbitantly expensive, and um, minimum pre-booking arrangements. Um, and then all kinds of other stuff, you know, fleet size caps, licensing costs, these things. But those were the two big anti-consumer ones. And, and there's no way that you can justify those from a consumer perspective. There's no way it's good for Darcy to have to spend mm-hmm. $70 minimum on a limo ride. It's crazy. It's pure protection, pure protection. So how did you go about systematically kind of taking these down one by one? Yeah, so, so the, the playbook that developed at Uber very early on was actually shining light. So people love the service. So generally, we were able to launch, and usually we could get creative about how we approached the different rules in, in a city. And generally, we were able to get the service going and have people start to use it. And it was really great for both consumers, but also for drivers. Um, the challenge with the limousine industry pre-Uber was that it was exceptionally inefficient. So mm-hmm. very heavily dominated typically by independent operators. So these are essentially entrepreneurs, individuals who would buy a car, get the right licensing, and, but their business was super choppy and their, their time was super underutilized. So they would do airport runs in the morning, And then they'd have big chunks of time during the day where they wouldn't be busy. Maybe they'd get a corporate livery run or something. Then they'd have like airport runs in the evening, rush hour. And then their cars would go generally unutilized at night and on weekends. And so there was just all these chunks of time where like they had this vehicle, they had the ability to provide service, but there was no demand. And then on the other hand, you have consumers who, you know, in most markets, taxis are hardest to get you know, at night on weekends, for example, you know, trying to leave a bar at at 2 Mm a.m. in a market like San Francisco or Vancouver, impossible to get a cab. So why wouldn't you have those limousines, you know, out on the road providing supply um, when it's needed? Uh, And so what Uber did was it kind of came along and matched these two things up. It took a hyper inefficient fragmented market and put a layer of software on top to match supply and demand and provide a much better service generally at a more affordable price and and much more reliably. So our our playbook was generally, you know, launch the service, create create a tremendous product for drivers and riders, you know, build a user base of tens or hundreds of thousands of users in a city. And then when when inevitably the, the regulatory issues would come to a head and there'd be government enforcement or, you know, legal action taken or tickets being given to drivers, then go directly to consumers and activate them to be a part of the fight and say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this city doesn't want Uber to exist. We think it should. We think that the city needs us. Please tell your politicians if you agree. And so we'd see this sort of groundswell of, um, you know, grassroots support for Uber from consumers and from drivers. And generally, it would, sometimes it would take years to play out. 
But usually, eventually, governments would respond and modernize rules and regulations to do what the consumer wants. And, and it was just because the product was so powerful. That's amazing. So who are the early adopters? Mostly just like kind of was that 20 to 30 cohort age-wise? Yeah, so it, it's actually, we had a very, a pretty good understanding of this. I would say more on intuition than data, but it, I think it ended up being true. Typically what we'd see when we go into a city is the same pattern play out. Uh, first off, usually our early adopters in a new city were people who'd used Uber in another city. You know, maybe they were in the tech industry, they'd gone to San Francisco, mm -hmm. downloaded the app, and then come home and there's no Uber. Oh my God, this sucks. So when we'd launch, we'd have this sort of installed user base of people who tried it elsewhere in the world. Then we'd usually have kind of the local tech industry adopt it first because maybe they'd heard of us or, you know, they were sort of, as you say, early adopters of technology in general. And we try to accelerate this dynamic by connecting with that industry. Usually we'd start our, our, our office space would be in like a co-working space and we'd give out coupons and promos to people who worked at tech companies or incubators or whatever. So that was always early. And then the next thing would be the entertainment uh, nightlife. So, you know, people going to bars and restaurants late night, and we would really go after this, this crowd um, and, and events were the, the biggest part of our early marketing. So every week we'd try to sign up We'd partner with every event in a city. So whatever it is, the beer festival, whatever parties are being thrown, charity events, you know, we would offer to sponsor these things. And generally what we do is we give rides to recipients. So I'm sure mm -hmm. I reached out to you at some point over some event you're associated with and said, hey, Darcy, can I give all your attendees free rides? And then people would have a use case to install the app. They got a free ride down to their party and then they kind of fall in love with it. And yeah, Bob, your uncle from there. Exactly. And so then people would start using it going out. And then the next evolution is people start to think, well, actually I can use Uber in my daily life. So then they start using it to commute to and from work because, Hey, it's nicer than public transit, better than a taxi. Maybe they're running late one morning. So then it works into more of like a utilitarian use case. And that was the typical evolution. And even today, I think that's the way it evolves a lot. You know, people first hear about it from a friend at a party or out for dinner or something, and then they start using it for their daily life. I always wonder about, you know, ruffling the feathers of the taxi industry in uh, places like Chicago that, you know, do you ever feel like you're kind of rogue and uh, pushing the envelope a little too far? It's not your nature, but I, you know, I could see how that, I'm sure there were some pretty hot and bothered people uh, when this is going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. The taxi industry for years was one that tried to stop us at every turn. You know, it, it's an industry that has been in cities forever, you know, and often the medallions would be owned by local influential families, sometimes politicians, sometimes, you know, people with disproportionate sort of influence in a city. And so the, the vested interest was, was very strong. And I think one of the mistakes we made early on, and, and we made many mistakes along the way, uh, but one of the ones we made is, I think we made it about like us against the taxi industry, which mm -hmm. really is not what we were doing. We were actually trying to modernize, 
you know, the mobility business overall and make things better for consumers, but also drivers in the industry, right? And so somehow the meme became like Uber versus taxi or, you know, taxi drivers dislike Uber, but really like we were trying to improve the industry they were in. And, you know, ultimately I think 10, 20 years from now, you'll look back and say, hey, you know, driving became a better profession because of what Uber brought and, and sort of, you know, taking out the inefficiency of middle people, of medallions, you know, all these mm -hmm. distorted rules and regulations, like ultimately that should be better for the people who earn money in that industry or who depend on the industry to move around. And I think that's what we're trying to do. But we somehow made it about like us versus them. And I think that was a huge mistake. And ultimately today, like we are partnering with the taxi industry all over the world and growing our taxi business is a major priority for us. And I think dri taxi drivers who use Uber software today love it the same way that, you know, limo drivers did 10 years ago, but we should have got there sooner. And now we're even doing partnerships with taxi companies, helping them run their fleets, building software, those types of things. So we were too combative on that front. And uh, I think we're still paying for it today. You mentioned earlier that um, mobility kind of one of the, one of the, buckets that you manage like how is mobility changing because you know i would attribute mostly uber to uber eats and then what we know as uber mobility historically so how is that changing so so uber overall as you say we're, we're in a few different businesses but but the two big ones we're in are delivery and mobility and they're distinct but there are definitely shared elements you know the the supply side of that equation, so i.e. drivers and couriers who are either moving people or moving packages, those are often the same people. They're powered by the same technology stack. Um, rules and regulations around those folks are that can be similar. Um, so there is overlap there. And then there's overlap on the consumer side because, again, we're servicing basic needs. Everybody eats and everybody needs to move. So there is a fair bit of, of overlap between the businesses. And I think we're, we're increasingly starting to think of what we do. If you're looking for the quick summary is, you know, if Amazon can get you stuff next day, we're the next hour company, right? And whether that's moving or sending something or receiving something, you know, we're on demand logistics at the push of a button. And so I think that's, that's the core of what we're doing within my business. So within mobility, what you'll increasingly see us do is evolve to serve all mobility needs for an individual. And, you know, today, majority of our business is still just Uber X rides, you know, solo point to point transportation. Um, mm -hmm. That's what people use us for, for the most part. Um, but increasingly, the, the faster growing parts of my business are things that maybe are not as obvious to, to consumers today is what Uber is, but will be over time. So, you know, adjacencies like planning your public transportation route through Uber. Um, we've got public transit data integrations live in dozens of cities around the world. And so you can open up your app in some of the largest cities globally and, you know, see when the next train is rolling by the closest uh, station to you. And we've even rolled out in a few different places multimodal journey planning. So you can buy your train ticket through the app, 
at the same time you're booking your Uber X to take you to the train station. So those types of integrations and, you know, taking care of all uh, parts of the journey, I think are going to be where you see us go. Um, same for other modes of transport that we don't even directly operate. So um, we don't have a bikes and scooters business anymore, but for folks who are familiar with, you know, these dockless bikes and dockless scooters that are now in cities all over the world, where you can just pick one up off the street corner and start it up and ride around, whether you're a tourist or a commuter, they're quite useful. You can get those in hundreds of cities around the world through the Uber app. So you, you see a scooter on the street corner, you scan it in the Uber app and it starts right up and all the payment and tracking, et cetera, is all taken care of. So these types of like third-party integrations, you know, other types of mobility through the Uber app, I think that's going to mm -hmm. be a bigger and bigger part of our business. We've got an experiment going in Australia in the US where when you land at the airport, you can book your rental car through Uber. And I think so many of these forms of transport have many of the same flaws and inefficiencies that we saw in the core for hire vehicle industry 10 years ago. And so I think we're going to be able to, to make them better. And software is a big part of that, but so is our operational capability. Yeah, it seems like Uber still has that that culture, you know, you hear like fail fast thing in, in tech, right? But um, where you kind of try ideas, put some resources behind it for a pretty extended period of time, it seems like in many cases, and then just say, okay, no, I'm not working, move on. Um, so does it feel like, does Uber still kind of maintain that sort of early stage tech, try, see if you get success, if not sort of iterate, iterate, iterate? Yes. Although I think we can get better. So, you know, we have a value called, you know, take big, bold bets, right? And this is, you know, taking some pretty ambitious shots on goal and then, you know, doing everything you can to try to make them work. Mm -hmm. It is hard. Like innovation within a company as a company gets bigger is, is a hard thing. And even early Uber, you know, if I was being self-critical or, or, or doubting, you know, our, our achievements, you could say that we had like such a great product that UberX itself was the product market fit was so strong that anything we did, this thing was going to work, you know, like, and when you have product market fit like that, your job as a business owner is a lot easier. And so, mm -hmm. You know, what's been an interesting muscle for us to build as a company and for me to build as, as a business owner has been, you know, as we try new products, as we launch things that are different than UberX, they don't all have product market fit. And actually being able to either change and evolve a product to have product market fit or know when you're just like, you know, trying to force a, a round peg into a square hole, that takes some learning and I think that the mistakes that we've made have been when we've rolled out a product, it hasn't worked. And then we've just tried to make it work for years and years and years. And generally making it work means like subsidizing the economics. So you burn tons of money. And at the end of the day, if you're not solving a customer need in an elegant way, it's probably not going to work. And so right. we're getting better at it. But I think that's, that's the hard thing is actually you know, innovating within a bigger company and, and figuring out what, what has product market fit and what doesn't, um, that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. It's, uh, lots written and talked about that. That's for sure. And in, in, in a big corporation, I'm sure it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's 
certainly more difficult thing to do than if it's a few a few people trying to you know see what sticks. So exactly. If we think about Uber on that point, like you know culture, um, one of the things that's interesting to me is is that it seems like Uber has an incredible ecosystem of of former employees that leave and start really great businesses. Um, like, is that something that's in, sort of fostered internally? It almost reminds me a little bit of, you know, and I'm sure this happens at a, at a lot of big tech firms because there's a lot of smart people that ultimately want to sort of cut their teeth on their own. But it's a little bit like, you know, consulting where you almost leave on good terms. But yeah, maybe talk a little bit about about that that culture of, you know, former employees doing interesting things in tech. I, I do think we have a culture where being an entrepreneur is celebrated and, you know, you've tried to establish a culture over the years of ownership. And that means again, acting like a founder, acting like an entrepreneur in your daily work. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that if you've been here any amount of time, you've seen a lot of things that are really useful if you're starting a company, Uh, you know, scale, risk appetite, uh, speed, quick decision-making, quick, quick moves in the market, you know, rapid growth, you know, what product market fit looks like. Uh, You have to have been given and give autonomy to your teams. And we also, you know, we used to, on the operation side of the business, we used to say that every general manager was the CEO of their city. And so that type of top-down culture, which really is about empowering people to make sort of full stack decisions for their business, I think is really, really powerful. So I definitely think there's an entrepreneurial DNA at Uber. I think you you will see dozens, if not hundreds of successful companies be founded by Uber alumni over the coming decades. Because again, I think you've seen the formula for success. You've you know, built some of those attributes um, of a successful entrepreneur into your culture. And I think people will take that away. Yeah. And also the idea of connecting sort of dormant supply with demand and seeing the technology. And then it was interesting when you said, take big, bold bets, you know, a few of the entrepreneurs I'm thinking about are going after massive markets with, you know, big ambition. So it kind of all, it connects the dots actually. Um, how's operating in, in, well, on that, like how's the culture of Uber sort of evolved over time on the surface? It feels a little more light and uh, refreshing than maybe the sort of constant wrestling that was happening earlier on both internally, seemingly at least from an outsider and, and externally, which you talked about in terms of like taxi and sort of the jarring back and forth. How's the culture changed in, in your view, or has it really? Yeah, so it, it, the culture has changed um, as it does at every company, as it matures. You know, you're not going to have the same company culture when you're 60 people as you will when you're 20,000 people. It's just impossible. And I think for the most part, we've evolved in a good direction. You know, there, there was some maturity that was needed in the organization, just in terms of how we approach our people. I'm surprised you're still around then. (laughs) Uh, I'm one of the few who has lasted this long. Um, 
but you have you do you, you do have to scale and be okay with it. And there there are days when I think, hey, this is you know this is not how it was eight years ago. And of course, I immediately go, yeah, of course, it, it could not be that way today at our size mm-hmm. and our scale and our impact in the world. I mean, we are for many cities like a massive utility almost. You know, we're a product that's depended on by folks to get around every single day. And you have to, I think the the maturity of your organization has to develop with that level of responsibility. And so, you know, I think what we've tried to do, and I think what most companies try to do as they scale is preserve the elements of your culture that are really important and unique and differentiating. And for us, you know, that's some of the things we've talked about, you know, the mission driven nature of our workforce is really important. People believe they're changing the world with their work and that matters to preserve. Um, you know, the heart that everybody puts into the work, the grit that it takes to survive here when you're kind of constantly battling, you know, whether it's competition or regulators or whatever obstacle it is, that that sort of competitiveness and grit and hustle is is really core to what we're doing. Some of that problem-solving ethos that I talked about early on that, that our, our founder instilled, you know, these are the things we're trying to preserve while maturing as an organization, focusing on, you know, the responsibility we have to communities, doing the right thing, you know, working to make sure we've got a healthy culture for our people, that it's sustainable from a life perspective, that we're prioritizing diversity and inclusion, you know, all these different things that society expects of large organizations. So it's really a balance between, you know, the early values of Uber and how we have to mature and grow as an organization. And, and I think we're striking that balance, although sometimes you swing too far in one direction or the other. Yeah. And the public versus private probably plays a lot into that, you know, also. Yeah, you're exactly right, Darcy. I mean, one of the big mistakes that I think we made early on was we, we, were, we just didn't realize how the world saw us and what the world expected of us. So, you know, internally you get all charged up and you believe you're changing the world for the good. And Hey, everything we're doing is awesome. Why are people mad at us? And really you're not recognizing that you've become a really big part of cities and that comes with a very high bar for how Mm -hmm. you act, how you behave, um, how you treat your stakeholders, whether it's your city or regulators or your drivers or, you know, your commercial partners, like all of these people, as you grow their, their expectations grow. And uh, I don't, I don't think we did a good job recognizing that. So you manage a map. How many people do you manage or are direct reports? My organization is uh, just over 10,000 people. Now I've got our customer support org, which is the largest org at Uber because we have, you know, agents all over the world that are doing support. Um, Some of that's in-house, some of that's out of house, but yeah, I've got about 10,000 people and I've got uh, my direct report group, I think is 11. So when you're looking at hiring a direct report, like what are the key things that you're trying to suss out early on? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, uh, great question. And hiring, I think it's, it's one of the most important things you do as a senior leader. It's also one of the hardest, mm. particularly externally, right? I mean, my personal view is senior external hires are often a coin flip as to whether they can be successful. You know, we get it right like half the time, I would say. Um, and it, it's, it's a hard thing to do because, you know, generally at a senior level, you're hiring for a mixed, a mix of capabilities. So background experience, 
Um, you're trying to find people who are going to be able to fit with all those different you know, elements of the culture I just described. You're trying to add sort of diversity of thought and experience to your group. Um, you know, you're trying to, you're just trying to, you know, manage so many competing tensions that it, it's hard. And, and these people are in high demand. And so you're often competing for talents yeah. and the, the cycle times are super long, you know, a senior director or, or VP level hire, it can, it can take me a year to close those roles. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very hard. And whereas with internal hires, you've got way more signal, you know, you've, you've worked with the person for years, you've seen them be successful with both their, you know, whatever their job is, but also, you know, thriving within Uber, but typically you're making a trade-off with experience. You know, you're, you're, you're probably stretching someone to that next job and, and you haven't necessarily seen them do it at that level before. So that, that's, that's the trade. Right. The other thing I find hard is by the time it gets to me, they've already been through so many interviews, screens with recruiters, screens with other members of the hiring panel that, it, it, you know, one, one of the tempting things can be is, oh, well, these seven people already think this person's great. So what am I going to discover at the final stage here? And you really have to avoid, right. you have to avoid that temptation, just agree with what everybody has been thinking so far. So yeah, you, you have to decide what's really critical for them to succeed in the role and what really matters to you. Um, you, I think I think you generally give them the benefit of the doubt on, on their credentials and these things because again, by the time they get to you, that's been really well tested. And so you, you're trying right. you're trying to assess out like, are they a problem solver at heart? You know, are they going to approach the job with the fierceness that's needed? Are they going to be able to sort of break through all the different barriers, internal and external, that are going to get thrown their way? So you're just trying, I think what you're trying to figure out is, can they deal with the hard parts of the job? Because you assume they can deal with mm-hmm. the basics of it. How do you do that? It's hard. You, you, try to, you try to ask questions to get to it, but it's, it's hard. And that's why I think the, the success rate is, it's like a coin flip. Yeah. That's kind of hiring at Uber. So I'd also be interested to know your view on if you were to start something from scratch again. Like, what are the critical things to do right away as an entrepreneur who's starting a firm from the get-go? And what are the critical first or second hires there? I think it kind of depends on what you're doing, but like, what, what advice would you give? Like, what would be the steps that you would take? So even before what you're saying, and I'll get there, but, and I'll use myself as an example, like what would need to be true for me to, to want to start something? Um, perfect reframe of the question. It's, 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 it's probably obvious, but I don't think it's always true. And it hasn't always been true for me, but I think you have to like really love and believe in the path you're heading down. Um, one of the things that I struggled with, with my first start, I wish on my clothes was like, it wasn't actually a product that I was sort of thrilled to use or felt particularly passionate about. I thought it was like a good business idea and that there was a market there. But I don't think that's enough. And the reason I don't think that's enough is because inevitably starting something is going to be really, really hard. And it's going to be mm-hmm. a grind. You've done it, Darcy. Like There are many moments you're going to question yourself along the way. You're going to wonder if you're spending your time on the right thing. You know, you're going to have all this FOMO about what else you could be doing with your life. You're going to have this like sick to your stomach feeling in the morning about whether, <laughs> whether this thing is going to be successful. And so unless you like really believe in it and are proud of the product or whatever the service is, 
and believe that, you know, it's going to make the world a better place. I think it's really, really hard to grind through those tough moments. So for me, I need to be, you know, a big time believer in the product, big time believer in the mission of whatever I was setting out to do, because it's going to be hard. So you kind of need that. So that's, that's one. Mm -hmm. Two is good one. I think you got to figure out what are the, you know, from, from a team perspective, what are the what are, what are the things you need to control to be successful from your internal team? So like from personally with my first startup, we managed an outsource tech development team and I would really struggle to make that choice again from day zero um, because mm-hmm. this, you know, ultimately we were trying to run a marketplace business that was, you know, entirely digital and we didn't control that ourselves. I had to, you know, I was managing a development team out of India and everything moved slower than I wanted. It was always a question of whether we spend more money or not. And so it just, we didn't control our destiny from a product perspective. And that was a huge mistake. So again, probably sounds obvious, but figure out what is absolutely core to you being successful or what you think is going to be core to you being successful and make sure that you control that from the outset. So for me, if I was starting another business that was at all tech enabled, which, you know, most businesses are these days, I would want to control development internally from day one. And that may, that, that to mm-hmm. me is, it's the only way to do it. The first version of the Uber app was written by, you know, outsourced engineers, I think out of Mexico, but quickly that was brought in house. But so it's, it's not necessary. maybe it's not necessary for the MVP, but I think very quickly on, you're, you're going to need to bring that in. Um, so that, that's two Three is, I think you have to, again, I'll just use myself as an example. I tried to bootstrap my first business, which again, I think kudos to entrepreneurs who are able to do that. But I think we were overly conservative in our approach. Like, you know, you need to be lean in terms of running something new, but you know, there is something you could be penny wise, pound foolish, i.e., Mm-hmm. You know, you need to, there's, there's money out there for startups. Like there are, I think we all see it. There are new things funded every single day. And so, and whatever idea you have, there's probably five other companies working on it already. Right. And so there's a risk right. that if you're too conservative in terms of financing, that actually that's just, that's the slow path. And so for me, I would make sure that I was looking to, you know, once I had conviction in my idea, I would be looking to move really fast to, you know, expand and, and get it to more places, more people. And that's probably going to mean raising money. So I would just be more aggressive up front. So those three things I said are all very specific to how I think about it. It's not formula for everybody, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't make those mistakes again. Yeah, those are great. That That's great. So maybe just, you know, picking your brain on an advice side, two things. What advice would you give new grads that say, I want to do Mac, I want to do what you did? Like we talked about earlier, there is no map, there's no path. You know, what would be your advice there? I would really encourage new grads to push their limits of comfort on risk taking. So I think the number one thing you know, insecure overachievers, uh, one of the number one mistakes they make 
is that they don't realize how long a career actually is because they've been on this track their whole life where they're always doing what they're supposed to be doing, i.e., you know, high school, elementary school, high school, you're moving up each grade. If you're getting top marks, you're mm-hmm. always doing what you should, dominating your extracurriculars. Like every year, the sequence is clear and you just got to be top of your class, right? But then once you kind of graduate out of the school ecosystem, you get out into the world, there's a risk that you fall into that trap with your career. Like you join a company and then you're just working towards the next promotion, working towards the next pay raise. And you're never going to leave that track if that's how how you're thinking about the world, Right. And it can be really yeah. uncomfortable to leave that track. When, when I left Bain, you know, most people that were close to me thought I was crazy, walking away from a good salary to literally go make zero money and try to start something from scratch. And that made it a really hard leap to make. Um, and then when my, you know, I spent two years and essentially my startup was failing, you know, I, I would be sick to my stomach every day thinking about, oh my God, I'm wasting time. Like, if I was still at Bain, mm-hmm. I would have got promoted this year and I would have made this much money. And, and I was thinking about this like opportunity cost of taking the risk. And it was really uncomfortable. But what I've come to realize and what I've heard a few people say since then is careers are actually like really long. <laughs> you know, you start working in your early 20s and, you know, most people are still in the game late into their 50s, 60s, even 70s these days, right? Or 80s, you know, mm-hmm. people... You've got a lot of time. And if you take a longer view of your career, I think it will free you up to take some risks because guess what? If you take a risk, you go off, you do your own thing for a couple of years and it doesn't work, there's always the next move and you've got decades, right? And so I think that's the biggest mistake. People kind of get trapped because they make good money, they're successful early, and then they feel like they got to stay on a track when really what you should be doing is taking risk, even if it doesn't work, taking a series of calculated risks through your career, I think ultimately ends up with bigger outcomes. So that's my number one piece of advice. Love that. What about like an industry or skill set to build? And, and, you know, I guess, again, that's person dependent, but oftentimes I have maybe former athletes come and say, oh, I want to get into finance or, and they're pretty narrow, narrow focused. I don't know if it's because like, that's where people used to do really well financially historically, but sometimes I push them to think about sales tech sales, particularly. And I know sales set is a bad connotation, business development, whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's such a great skill set to learn because if you're good at it, technology is not going away and you can kind of move up the ranks. Right. So, but that that's my view. So I'll flip it over to you. What, what would you advice would you give in terms of industry and skill set? I'm pretty industry agnostic. I don't disagree with your advice that I think that getting some exposure to tech, to emerging tech, um, getting some exposure on the sales side, I think you said that something to that effect as well, like is valuable too, because it's not something they teach in schools and, and it's a skill mm-hmm. that takes time to develop. So I think those things are valuable. I am pretty industry agnostic overall. I, especially early in your career. And I think it's actually more about getting exposure to a breadth of stuff early on, if you can. So one of the great things about consulting was I I sort of got two things out of it. One was I I got the technical toolkit. So you go there as a fresh grad and 
you know, they teach you how to do analysis, to, you know, mine data, to build presentations, to tell stories with data, like that kind of stuff matters. So you learn that. But two, what I loved about mm-hmm. it is you're doing a series of projects, each are like anywhere from one month to six months long, and you're learning about a whole bunch of different industries. And so after four years, you know, I probably saw 20 different industries and that's really valuable too. So my, my advice would be if, if there's a way to get a scan of a few different areas, I think that's really valuable. Yeah, that's great. So what, what are some ideas like on a personal last one ideas? And then I want to hear a little bit about rise, the charity or initiative that you're affiliated with. So first let's start with like, what are some ideas that you're interested in either, you know, personally as an angel type investor or investor, or just like keeping your eye on out of interest? So for me, I think a really great way to filter ideas, if you're thinking about it as an investor or a potential entrepreneur is just literally through your own personal experience in the world. And like, what are the problems you have? And we all have these Every day we go through life. I mean, COVID is kind of a unique time, but, you know, we all have these broken experiences in our day-to-day lives, whether you're dealing with, you know, a company, uh, a service provider to you, whether you're sitting in traffic, whether you're on your laptop and you're working with like a painful piece of software, you know, whether you're a homeowner Mm. and you're dealing with fixing shit that breaks, you know, whatever it is we all experience like pain and inefficiency as day to day. Uh, it's just, just navigating the world day to day. And so most of the ideas that I've gotten really excited about as an investor are, are where I've seen a company sort of solving an experience, a pain, a painful experience that, that I've had. So, you know, I'm an investor in Jiffy, which is this app that essentially connects homeowners who need maintenance or service on uh you know some part of their house via an app and they just quickly literally it's like uber for home maintenance i think i got their 25 dollars gift certificate christmas gift today so i appreciate that (laughs) excellent appreciate that (laughs) but like i just and like we my wife and i bought a home five years ago and it was so painful to find somebody to work on a problem you know you'd like google Maybe you go to a website, there's like four different companies, you call them all, supply and demand's all, all mismatched because, you know, so many of these companies are actually, there's a shortage of them. So they're not interested in taking your booking unless it's a certain value or this and that. So anyways, it, mm-hmm. it clearly solved the problem I was having. So when I, I met the founders, I was like, yes, this is a no brainer. And so I've invested in a, com- a couple of companies in that space, three different companies that are solving sort of different, different parts of the home maintenance equation. So that's the lens I would use. So if you see like a broken, inefficient customer experience, and and that can be on either the consumer side or the supplier side, right? Because Jiffy and Uber, all these, a lot of these companies, they're solving a problem on the supplier side as well, right? Like if you're, if you're a new Mm -hmm. grad, you you know, if you're a trade, tradesperson, let's say you're a plumber and, you know, you, you, you go to trade school, you learn that craft generally like to, to start building your business, you've got to like apprentice with somebody who's going to like take you along over the years and then maybe eventually like inherit their book of business. That's a super old school way to, to grow your, your own personal business as an entrepreneur, right? What if you could just go to a service to sure. feed you leads? And as long as you delivered really excellent customer service on the jobs you get, 
you kept getting more leads and then you could hire more people and, oh, they built tools to help manage some of the thing, the parts of the business that you don't want to deal with, like billing or customer invoicing. These, so that's where these things are going. So yeah, that that's always a hallmark to a good business where you're fixing like a consumer problem and a supplier problem. And often that's a marketplace or an aggregator or that, that kind of type model. Right. Yeah. Something you can relate to too. That's tangible. And you're like, okay, this, this yeah. resonates. Yeah, totally. Makes sense. Okay. So talk a little bit about rise rise helps in the, in the group that you're affiliated with, I think as a, a board of director. So rise is a Canadian, a Canadian charity. It's a national organization that essentially provides financing to folks with mental health or addiction issues. And these are entrepreneurs uh, with mental health or addiction issues. And often these types of individuals are sort of fall through the cracks of traditional financing options. Um, mm-hmm. You know, either bank financing, debt financing, traditional debt financing is too expensive or they don't meet the lending criteria because maybe they have, you know, various issues in their past or, or whatever. So we are essentially providing low-income loans to entrepreneurs with mental health or addiction issues. And often it's, you know, sole proprietorship, small business type things, think makers and bakers, uh, you know, mm. folks running shops, uh, folks, you know, artists, you know, these, these types of, of industries, there's, there's all sorts of them, but, but that's the sort of typical profile. And what's amazing is like, there's all sorts of, uh, data and research that suggests that, you know, entrepreneurship is actually a really great option for folks with these types of challenges because it, it can be flexible, you know, they can be their own boss, control their own schedule, there's a sense of purpose uh, that comes from running a business and the challenge of that. And so enabling these individuals, I think, has a lot of societal benefit, you know, not only helping them wrestle with these, uh, their challenges, but also like creating economic value in the process. So it's been a really cool experience and getting to meet a bunch of the entrepreneurs through the program uh, is great, you know, along with the financing comes like business coaching and support and mentorship that the organization provides to sort of help people grow their business and manage their business and deal with the challenges. So it's been, it's a really great org. Um, you know, for me, mental health is a, a sort of an important area of interest and a, a personal priority. And, and so getting to sort of use my time and knowledge to, to contribute to the organization has been super rewarding. So it, it's a great one. That's great. It's great. It sounds like a great initiative. So it's risehelps.ca, I think is the, yes. the website if you want to check it out. So final question, if you were to pick one song to sing karaoke to, what would it be? I think uh, Bon Jovi always is, is a specialty of mine that I've definitely done at a piano bar or two. So. Okay. You had that in the bag. That was like, boom. So that's obviously the one. <laughs> All right, Mac. Well, it's uh, it's a, Great conversation, really insightful. You know, you've had a quite a career, and I'm sure you know still a, a lot of that story to write personally. So, congrats on the success today, and thanks for uh, you know giving us a little insight into Uber. And um, yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Darcy. Appreciate you having me. Your time is valuable, so thanks for joining us for this episode of Venture and Gains, where we connect great people, ideas, and opportunities. It's this idea of net weaving, 
versus networking. Remember that you can find more episodes at VentureAndGains.com. And if you know any entrepreneurs, emerging asset managers, or fascinating people that you think would be a good fit, flip us a note and let us know. Stay well. Darcy McConvey is a director of private capital markets at Graybrook Realty Partners and is registered under Graybrook Securities, Inc. The opinions and statements expressed by Darcy and the Venture and Gains guests are their own and they do not reflect the opinions of Graybrook Realty Partners or Graybrook Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.